Last week, we hit probably the pinnacle of Matthew as we looked at Peter's confession of Christ. And then we see Jesus predicting his death, followed immediately by Jesus rebuking Peter and then talking about denying oneself. Remember, Peter had made this astonishing, like saying, he identified Jesus as the Christ. And as Jesus gives him that new name or reaffirms it one more time, we see that Peter reaches a high point, but we also saw immediately thereafter that Peter seems to have struggle to understand what does this mean. We're going to kind of kick off from there in a moment. Let's go back to last week. So we saw that Peter had made this great identification of Christ as the Messiah. We saw that Jesus had given him authority and the other disciples as well. But upon you, Peter, singularly, I'm going to build this church. You're going to be the opening foundation. Peter is psyched. He's excited. Jesus then goes on to tell him that he's going to go and be betrayed and die. Peter jumps up and tries to act like the new authoritative bodyguard that he is. No, Jesus, this will never happen to you. And he's rebuked. What Jesus was saying when we left off was, let's get this right. Don't forget my teachings. Just because I'm announcing that this church is going to be built, it doesn't mean that it's going to be built with glory. There's going to be suffering here on earth. And you disciples will need to see that that doesn't go away. So he said these words, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will be for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Tough questions to remind him. Don't think that the teachings that I've given you about suffering, about really denying yourself, and we looked at how they related back to earlier verses in Matthew, that is not off. That's still on. But we got stuck here a little bit at the end. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Philip rightly charged at this last sentence, we didn't quite answer, so I'd like to just look at it in fairness. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's a little troubling when you look at that in English. It's a little troubling when you look at it probably just in the original language, because he's saying some of you are not going to die before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We went back to an earlier verse, say this isn't the first time that Jesus has made a claim. If you flash back to Matthew, you see that he says, you're not going to finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And we looked at those two verses and we said, there seems to be something strange here. It seems like Jesus is predicting that his coming is going to be very soon such that those people who are listening to it are going to be there and still alive when it happens. What does it mean to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? What I'd like to point out from last week to make it clear is, whatever it means, there is one thing it probably doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he's going to do some sort of second coming. That's not what he's alluding to here. So last week, here are the explanations that were thrown out. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom could be the transfiguration that we're just going to talk about. That's probably not likely, but that's one possibility. The death and resurrection, that's a possibility. His ascension into heaven, that's a possibility. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that's a possibility. But none of these say 
some sort of future second coming judgment day type thing. That's us reading into those words something that isn't actually there. Yeah, Philip? You said that like, uh, we're sort of reading in the idea that it has to be referring to like a future or like a, some futuristic event. Um, but um, I feel like with the yeah, sentence before it, unless those are really talking about totally separate things, um, that, that at least seems to be talking about the same idea. Um, and so that has to be that has to be some aspect of whatever him coming in his kingdom is. Like, and rewarding each person according to what he has done, I don't feel like fits any of those possibilities we that. Yes, that's very good. Because what you're pointing out is it sounds like what it's saying is that the kingdom is when he's going to come in his father's glory. That would cause the problem. But I don't think that's true. Here's why. To say that he comes in his father's glory really just describes that he will come at a time that he's glorified. But we know that right at the time that Jesus is resurrected, he's already in that state. He's already going to be ascended to heaven. Where? To sit at the right hand of God. He's already in the things that describe what it means to be in the Father's glory. Remember when we looked at the verse last week, talking about what the Son of Man really means, we're looking at an old kind of concept that the Son of Man is coming. He is the one who is going to be glorified like the Father. Jesus has always been in that glory. That's the whole idea. Does that make sense? So you think so. So you'd say potentially this, like the first sentence is talking, at least the coming with his angels and rewarding person according to what he's done is potentially talking about a future event for us. Uh, but the sun man coming in his kingdom is referring to a different event, if we're even identifying them just as events. That's right. The first sentence here, does refer to something that is from our perspective still in the future. The second one is really referring to something that's going to happen very soon in their hearing. And I don't think that they're the same thing. Jesus doesn't come into his kingdom when he comes to judge and reward people. Jesus is already in that kingdom. He's probably been in it before the incarnation. Of course we know that. He'll be in it again probably the minute he's either resurrected or whatever happens, he's returned to that place. So that's why I don't think it's like he's waiting for that to happen. But we read it that way. We read into it the idea that only when he comes back to judge the world or reward the world or do whatever he's going to do, that's when his kingdom begins. And I don't know that you make that connection, but that's what trips everybody up in these verses. Okay? Troubled? No, I'm, just, I'm agreeing with you. Because I just think if it was the same thing, it would, have, it would have had the same words. Like it would have been, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory, blah, blah, blah. And then... You know, if he was talking imminently about his second coming, then he would have said that you won't taste death before the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory, like, again. So I definitely think it's two separate things. Good, that's new for me to agree. That's good. That's a, <laughs> that's, that's, I'll take that when I can get it. Let's open up to Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Lena and I were in the Holy Land in 2005, and I had actually been there about five or six times, but had never gone to the traditional site of where the transfiguration takes place. So while we were there, we took some photos for you just to kind of show you the mountaintop. This is Mount Tabor, which 
is traditionally associated with the Transfiguration, but most scholars believe it probably didn't happen here because it's not high enough, although it's pretty high for us. Um, this is kind of the view from up there to show the height above the rest of the cities that you can see around it. We just kind of like took some photos while we were up there. There's like this old monastery up there that marks the site, and it's actually pretty beautiful. We took pictures inside of like the kinds of mosaics that they did to portray the transfiguration. Here's a close-up of Jesus in, in the transfiguration and then, of course, the disciples all around him. So I thought that would be kind of a glimpse of some place for you to see. But most scholars think it's much higher, a higher mountain than this. So they climbed to the top. Now, what is the transfiguration? That's something to ask about. Was this a physical event? The actual language implies that they may have seen a vision but it doesn't necessarily mean that Moses and Elijah were physically there, but it's clear that they saw Moses and Elijah and that all three of them seem to corroborate this. In fact, as we move forward, you'll see Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So whatever this event is, it's clearly enough for Peter to start thinking that maybe I should build some sort of shelter for you. That sounds like Peter running off a little bit ahead of everybody else again, right? So if you see Jesus transfigured, right, and there's Moses and Elijah, clearly people who have not been alive for a long, long time, Peter's first inclination is maybe they're going to be around for a while, I should build a shelter for everybody, right? It seems kind of silly. I think that's part of it while it says here, like it's almost like God interrupts this silly thought that Peter has, you know, like, Peter's first inclination is to say, let's set up some shelters. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where do those words come from? We've seen those words before in Matthew. The baptism of Jesus. So it seems like if we're in Act 2, the major Act 2 of Matthew... Jesus has begun the ministry, and God has appeared, God the Father has appeared at the baptism and said these words, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We've now reached the pinnacle point where Jesus is identified as the Christ, but from this point forward, he's beginning his march to the crucifixion. And right at that moment, right after this whole series with Peter and his identification of the Christ and all of that, it seems like the voice of the Father returns one more time to re-emphasize it again. A little bit less public probably than the baptism of Jesus, but he adds these words, listen to him, that aren't there in the original. So he's saying, listen. It's almost to emphasize the point that what's about to happen is God's plan. Why is that a good emphasis? Because even the disciples are confused about it. Every time Jesus says, I'm going to go to be killed, their reaction is, no, 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 that can't happen. Other people who hear about it will say, wait a minute, that can't happen. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to restore everything. You can't die. So it's almost like God's voice is emphasizing again that things are still on track. Yes, even if that track leads right to the cross. That is the plan. And here I am saying, this is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, listen to him. So Peter seems a little silly there again, trying to put up shelters for these two 
people that he sees around Jesus. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. How many times have we seen Elijah come up as a theme in the last few verses that we've looked at? I've read Matthew a number of times, and it seems like the emphasis on Elijah always escaped me for some reason. Before we get to Elijah, there is Jesus repeating the secret motif of his messianic mission again. Don't tell anyone what you've seen. We've seen that in Matthew a number of times so far, right? People get healed, don't tell anybody what's happened. He tells people, yes, you're right, you've answered correctly, I'm the Christ, but don't tell anybody yet. He keeps repeating the don't tell anybody yet, but now he adds a very important qualification. Until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now he's starting to explain why it is that they're not supposed to tell anyone. And you can see the reason begins to be because all of this is only going to make sense probably when you look back after you understand it. We see the disciples over and over seem to not quite grasp it, even though it's right under their nose. But the reason we can see that they don't get it is because we already know how it ends. We already know what's going to happen. And Jesus says the same thing here. Until... I've been raised from the dead. Then you can start to tell everybody what you've seen. By the way, it will make a lot more sense to you once you see that. Obviously, it will make a lot more sense. Even at the last minute, Peter's pulling out a sword and chopping off an ear, and people are running away scared. People are trying to deny him. Like All those things are going on because they're still not quite getting it. Until the resurrection, it will make a lot more sense. And certainly, at Pentecost, it will finally make full sense. Monique? Is it like a messianic prophecy or part of like Jewish belief, like biblically based apart from tradition, that Elijah would come before the Christ? Or is it just like tradition? Because I'm curious about that and I'm also curious about how he sort of applies the idea of Elijah to other, what would you call them? Let's walk through those things. Those are good questions. First of all, let's look at the transfiguration. Jesus is changed. He has this brilliant appearance. Okay? And then you have Moses and Elijah. All right, so before we skim right over those facts and just go, yeah, right. Those are the usual suspects that would show up to a transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, they're like, who else would be there? I mean, that's just who gets to go. Why Moses and why Elijah? Let's start with Moses. Why Moses? What's Moses doing there? Like, why those two? Of all the people in the Old Testament, how come those two get to go? Well, Elijah... Elijah never died. Didn't Elijah never die? Isn't he one of the ones that just was taken to heaven in a chariot or something like that? That's correct. Elijah did not die. Okay? So, yeah. Does it ever say that Moses died or does it say he walked with God? Uh, the person who you're referring to that walked with God is Enoch. Okay. But Moses died, but there's a curious verse in Exodus that said that God buried Moses. Okay? 
Yeah, and so by the time of the first century, there had been a, I want to say an interpretation. It was a belief, but it was based on an interpretation of that older text that started to believe that actually what it meant when God buried him is that he assumed him into heaven. Although we don't have any biblical authority for that, but there was a common belief that that's what had happened because Moses was a very special figure in the Old Testament. And if Elijah could be assumed, and Enoch, who was a man who just worshipped the Lord and prayed his whole life, he just walked right into heaven, it says, that maybe Moses could get into that. Okay, why Moses and Elijah, other than the fact that it's true, they both had strange endings to their life. Let's put it that way. What else do they have in common? Basis of Judaism. From our Jewish scholar, why? Why? I don't know. Like the highest prophet, like you get the law from Moses, you took the people of Exodus, and, and so we have the law with Moses. Elijah, to be honest, I can't remember. I remember celebrating <laughs> his festival, but I don't remember. Okay, first of all, let's take Moses. He does inaugurate the era of the law, which is one of the pinnacle eras of the Old Testament, the era of the law. In fact the miracles of the Old Testament really begin around the time of Moses. That's the time where they're most concentrated, including the time in Egypt and out, because that inaugurates the era of the law. Similarly, Elijah inaugurates the era of the prophet. He's the most powerful, and there's a huge amount of miracles that come at that time when the era of the prophets is really moving forward. So if you look at the Old Testament, it stands on those two eras, the eras of the law, the eras of the prophets. In fact, when people summarized the, the Old Testament, the way to say it is the Law and the Prophets. Right? Those were the two major sections. So here you have representatives of the two major eras of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, standing around Christ. So that's another reason. And that's probably the main reason that we see them here. I mean, they represent those things, okay? But there's all these other subtleties you could throw out. People have debated why those two, like, Jesus, is he coming to replace Moses? Is he replace the Law? Elijah's coming to foreshadow the Messiah. You asked a very good question. Where does this testimony come from about Elijah? I know that at the Jewish Seder, right, in the Passover, like they actually leave room for Elijah, don't they, at the table? Okay. Because of this verse right here in Malachi, there's actually a verse that is talking about the future judgment of the Lord. And in Malachi 4 5, the Lord is speaking, saying, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, day should have been capitalized because they're talking about a specific day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, basically, or the day of his coming, right? So from this verse, most Jewish scholars believe that before the Messianic age was, could be fulfilled, Elijah would be there, okay? So the disciples asked him, makes sense, right, in the story, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? What Jesus is saying, remember, just a minute ago, was like, look at me, the glory comes during the transfiguration, he's showing this glorious event. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. They clearly have identified him recently as the Messiah. They're starting to get it, but they're still asking, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? It seems a little strange that the disciples still don't get this point because we've already seen in Matthew a couple of times. Here's one. When Jesus was talking about John the Baptist and he was talking about who he was, remember he had heard that John was in prison doubting what was going on. 
And after the disciples of John the Baptist were out of earshot, he turned to the crowd and he talked about how great John the Baptist was. Remember, he said that he's the greatest born among women. From all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he's the Elijah that was to come. Jesus has already identified that John the Baptist is the Elijah. He's already told the disciples that. He said it again more recently, just a couple of verses ago. When he asked people, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some people replied, John the Baptist, others Elijah. Elijah keeps coming up because people are looking for him. But Jesus already made the connection. John the Baptist is the Elijah that was to come. And yet the disciples still have difficulty making that connection. Jeremy. The Malachi is not talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. It's talking about different things. So it's really not necessary. Like if that Elijah if, is referring to the end judgment, then it's a confusion on the part of the people that they expect Jesus, that they expect Elijah at that point. They don't understand that it's not about that. So at that point, it seems like he's just placating them and saying, well, if you need an Elijah, it's John the Baptist. In other words, they're, they're more, it's more cultural than there's anything else, than some actual prophecy. Okay, to push back, though, another way to look at it, though, is from those verses in Malachi, the interpretation had arisen that before the Messiah comes, Elijah would make another appearance. Or some people thought he actually might be Elijah. Okay? I think the first one, take that one where Elijah would come as a precursor. Whether that happened through misinterpretation or that was just interpretation that people had gotten, I actually think Jesus is saying, that is right, but he has already come. Because he says it right there. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. He's not saying, that's a wrong interpretation. He's saying, to be sure, that's right. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. You just didn't recognize him. And I've already told you this, disciples, he's John the Baptist. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So it's more like saying Elijah was a synonymous word for a prophet. Yes, and the reason I agree with Jeremy that they might have misinterpreted it is because the prophecy in Malachi talks about the day of judgment. But if you read it in context a little bit more, it really is talking about this age where he's going to restore his people. Okay, so... Most of the Jews are expecting either something to restore them to the land. I mean, there's, we've already talked about all the different interpretations of what they were waiting for. But they knew that somebody was coming, and that's why the disciples are asking, like, why do the teachers of the law think that he's still going to come? I mean, what they're really saying is, if you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, why are those other people wrong when they expect that Elijah must come first before the Messiah comes? Because you're clearly here, and Elijah hasn't shown up, and he's basically saying, that prophecy is not wrong. The teachers aren't off base too much. They just missed who it was. And it isn't a reincarnation or a resurrection. It's just that it was symbolic of who was to come. And the reason John the Baptist is not a prophet alone, I mean, he was the one who gets to hear from the Lord who he is, and Jesus calls him the greatest that was ever born. So we can't really just relegate him to some place. I mean, he is the Elijah. Yeah, I mean, they were waiting for the big one like Elijah, and it's like, yeah, but it's him. All right, let's keep going. So this incredible event has happened on the mountaintop. By the way, let's remember that numerous big events seem to happen on mountaintops. So this theme is there. If Jesus is really coming to be like the 
And I know people debate whether he's really intentionally trying to emulate and be the second Moses and replace the law with what he's giving. He gave the Sermon on the Mount on a mount just like Moses had gotten the law on a mount, all this stuff. So he's again coming down a mountain. People see all sorts of connections to when Moses comes down the mountain and sees an unbelieving, unfaithful Israelite crowd. All right, I'll just point that out in fairness. I don't make too much of a deal out of it, but commentators love to just you know wax philosophical about that. But here he is coming down a mountain. When they came to the crowd, so they're coming back down, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they were unable to heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to him in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Now you guys know what's on the next slide. Because we've studied this verse extensively when we were doing our series on questions about prayer. Specifically the question of, is the only reason my prayer doesn't get answered because I don't have enough faith? And we covered that for probably like three weeks on end. So we're not doing that tonight. Okay? If you want to debate whether faith is the only thing that makes prayer happen or not, go back to our series and listen to questions on prayer because we go through that extensively. But we did say in summary after that talk or those talks that faith is definitely a factor in prayer and in these kinds of miraculous things. You cannot say that faith has no part to play in it. So here's what Jesus says. He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Remember when we said that Jesus announced that Peter was the rock, he was standing in front of a place that was filled with large rocks. Jesus seems to contextualize his examples by where he is so people could visualize what's going on. He has just come down the mountain. So he makes this statement, which is a kind of a statement that people knew. Moving a mountain was symbolic for doing the very difficult or impossible. So if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And I'll leave the rest of the discussion for you to go back and listen to about does he really mean that we could move mountains? Is he prescribing us to move mountains? What is he really saying there? And most of it comes down to if you don't have faith, you're not going to even be able to do what God has given you authority to do. And I'll leave it there. Philip? I have a question on verse 17, actually, like going back a little bit. Um, but Jesus' response of, I, I don't really quite understand, like, where that's coming from, like, like, did he seems to get pretty like angry and frustrated, and I'm not sure if he's frustrated with this guy asking for his son to be healed, or frustrated with the disciples that they couldn't heal the guy, or heal the boy. Like, either way, I'm not really quite sure I understand. I think Jesus is frustrated with the disciples. There's a couple ways to look at it. First of all, Jesus has already given them authority to cast out demons in Matthew 10:1. So he's already sent them out with that authority. And by the way, they've already, they did it. They come back and they report that they were able to do it and different stuff. So 
I think you could say Jesus is a little bit frustrated with the fact that this should be something you know how to do by now. All right? Especially if we assume that we're nearing towards the end of his three-year ministry, like we've been over this kind of thing. I mean, there seems to be a lot of theme from all the chapters we've looked at. There seems to be a lot of like, haven't we already covered this, guys? Another way to look at it is there's been this glorious event on the mountain, and now we're coming back to the mundane realities of like the disciples still can't cast out demons, you know? That may be another way to look at it. I think you're right to point out that there's frustration in this. We've already heard Jesus use words like unbelieving generation. You know, he's already kind of used this, you have little faith, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? That is kind of, I mean, you can't, you can't mask that. Now, remember, he's only taken three disciples up on the mountain, so presumably the other nine are part of this crowd that is standing there, and they say, I brought them to your disciples. So clearly while he's up there, if this is sequential and chronological, then he comes back down and realizes this is what's happening. Does that answer the question? And even the frustration, how it, how he expresses it is, I, I don't know, it presents a potential picture of Jesus that's not as commonly taught, like this idea that he didn't want to be on earth. Like, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Like, and that is a little disturbing to me. Well, I think you could explain the first one a little bit better than the second one. How long shall I stay with you? It sounds that way in English. I think if you were to say it more in the, in the way that it's meant, it's more like, like, how long do I need to be here with you until you guys are going to understand this? But the how long shall I put up with you, yeah, that sounds a little bit more harsh. And you're right, that's not the Sunday school Jesus that we get to see. I mean, that is, that's why we're looking at the actual words rather than like the image we have. Uh, that sounds a little bit closer than, to Jesus who's going to like, that, the kind of person who's going to woe the, the Pharisees with some pretty harsh words. But I think that his frustration is kind of, you know, we're nearing the end. And it seems like you still aren't being able to do the things that you already have authority to do, that I've given you authority to do, and that you've done. And it seems like we keep going backward. So yeah, come back. And the other question I had was, that, was like, even this initial, like, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Like, and I understand if he's talking to the disciples, like, calling them unbelieving, to later respond to, yeah, you don't have enough faith. But, like, why is he calling them perverse? Like, I don't understand. Like, like is he just, like, frustrated and just throwing out random words, like, insult them? <laughs> When you put unbelieving and perverse to get next to each other, what you're really doing is you're saying, oh, generation that has no faith, and oh, generation that's steeped in sin, which we said during our series when it comes to prayer that those are two of the biggest obstacles sometimes that may stop another, uh, you know, like your ability to pray and pray in faith. Maybe it's coincidence, but I don't think it is. I think that he's kind of like identifying two of the things that we see elsewhere in Scripture, that some of the things that are going to prevent prayer from being effective or you from doing what you have authority to do is lack of faith and somehow being, you know, steeped in sin. Jeremy? I would disagree with the statement you said about it being an issue of the authority that Jesus had given them. It's, I don't think it's so much the issue that they've forgotten about or that they've been given authority. It's that they don't understand that they need to be faithful to God's will. I mean, there's a difference. Just uh, Clearly they haven't forgotten, but... Even if God, or even if that was the case, you wouldn't say that, that, well, that's, you know, that was the problem. This verse gives us a unique glimpse that we don't usually get in life because Jesus heals them. So most times in life when we're struggling with why didn't prayer work, here we are getting dragged into that again, but I mean, why prayer didn't work, we say it could be lack of faith, but that's not the only thing. You just can't have faith and make it happen. We, we did all that. But it could be sin. 
It could be outside the will of God, but here one of the beauties is we get to eliminate at least will of God off the list because we know that Jesus healed him. So what did the disciples lack? Well, he says it's faith. He says it. So in this case, like, they had the ability before. He gave them the authority to do it. They asked him the question. We get to look right at it. We don't have to speculate. And that's great because in life, for us, we have to speculate a lot. We don't always know the answer. That's what makes it so frustrating. But here is one example where the answer is revealed. It was his will, and they just didn't have enough faith. I'll leave it there, because otherwise we'll be back to the whole three weeks that we spent on it last time. And that's why we record them, and you can go back and listen to them. So, after he says, you can do these things, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. This is the second time in just the verses we've looked at that he told them that I'm going to be raised from the dead. And yet still the disciples are going to continue to have trouble with this. So we can see that this was difficult to understand and grasp. Okay? Let me push forward and finish off chapter 17. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, Peter replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. What is that all about? Anyone want to throw in their idea of why this story is in the book of Matthew? This seems like a strange story, doesn't it? If you really break it down, like Jesus is going to use his miraculous power to get out of paying a two drachma tax? Like, who does that? Other than Christians, like in the modern world, like, <laughs> go out to eat with a bunch of Christians and you get ripped off most of the time, you know, like, hey, what about the tax and the tip, you know? Like, how oh, come I have to cover it? Jeremy. What's interesting about it is, one, he still ends up paying it, right? He even says, okay, a fish, whatever. But the, the thing gets paid, and it gets paid in his name. I mean, it's not like Peter shows up to the tax club and says, by the way, a fish popped out of the ocean and gave me this coin. I mean, I don't think he's going to tell him that much. There's something going on here where he's trying to sh teach some deeper type of lesson, right? The, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own sons, from others, and then the, the, the sons are exempt or the sons are free, therefore. So the, there's some kind of, in other words, you're free, in essence, you're free from doing this, but there's more that you're free from than just paying this. But at the same time, to not offend them, he still makes sure it's get, it gets paid, which there's some, like a lesson being done here, but at the same time, he doesn't wish, clearly he doesn't wish to be, I don't know, disruptive, or he doesn't want to be noticed. So he makes sure it gets paid. Okay, anyone else? Yeah. I think it's setting kind of an interesting example. It's kind of like the whole idea of like, to serve first is to be like a leader, or to humble yourself, or that he wouldn't have to, but he does. Just same thing like Christ was pure and he had no sin, but he died for us, and like he didn't he didn't have to take sin, but he took on our sin. It's kind of like 
don't know, it's just showing an example that maybe, yeah, he's exempt, but he's still going to do something. Like, he's going to go above and beyond and do it anyways because it's what it's called for. And he's, like, setting an example. Because it's kind of not a cool thing that the kings are going to others and not his own. You know, like, the favoritism of, like, not his own son. So it's almost like an equal, I don't know if it's, like, an equality thing or just showing an example that he's going above and beyond and that you have to serve to be a good leader or something along those lines that he doesn't need to or deserve it, but he's doing it anyway. Okay. Jill's pointed out that the, you know, if, if Jesus is the, the king, so to speak, of the temple, right, then his sons, or perhaps if you want to say by allegory or the figure of speech, his disciples are free from that as well. Perhaps even a bigger statement of you, you won't even need to do this eventually. Like, you'll be free from these things. Okay. The two drachma tax that was there was every Jewish male that was of adult age, was paying this tax annually to support the temple in Jerusalem. There's actually history that shows that the rabbis and the temple priests were exempt. Jesus could have claimed the exemption on the basis that he could have qualified as a rabbi. The reason they come to Peter is because they're staying at Peter's house. Remember, Peter lived in Capernaum, so they're likely at his house. So they come to the head of the household, which is Peter, and say, basically, your teacher pays, right? They're not even really questioning it. The way the language is written... In the original language, it's not even accusatory. It's kind of like, he's already paid, right? They're almost confirming it. Peter's saying, yes, there's a little bit of weirdness there because if the rest of the discussion makes sense, he actually hasn't paid it. So what is Peter saying yes for? Maybe they've paid it in the past, that's what he's referring to, but they clearly haven't paid it yet for this year. So Peter's response seems a little bit strange, that he says yes. It brings to mind the Peter we're going to encounter in Acts later, and in other books where Paul has to actually rebuke Peter because Peter seems to be a little bit of a people pleaser later on in ministry where he wants to say yes. Well, the, of course, the ultimate example of being a people pleaser is denying Christ three times so that you can save your own skin. So we see that clue of Peter right there. But more so than that, one thing to point out is this whole allegory that he's giving, this analogy about the sons, what he's really saying is if the temple tax is a temple to God, to maintain the temple, which is our relationship with God, he's saying that also means that if you're going to use an earthly analogy of kings, they don't tax their own children. They tax others. He's really saying he doesn't tax his own son, me. I'm clearly exempt from this tax. You could include the disciples, maybe not. Jeremy pointed out that he told him to go do this, and it actually happened, although three commentators that I looked at said the same thing. Even though Jesus tells Peter to do this, we have actually no indication to say that he did it. Now, we don't have any indication that he didn't. I don't even know why they would make that distinction, except for this. It seems a little strange, again, that Jesus would go to all this length and have Peter do this just to get a coin. I'm just giving you the different views, and I'll tell you that in the end, it's still a strange passage. We should be a little bit uncomfortable with this passage. Like, I don't know that we've nailed a meaning for this passage. Because you have Peter saying something that isn't quite accurate. Jesus, who knows immediately what he thinks and gives him this analogy, that says that we are exempt from this. But then he gives them this strange, miraculous way of going to pay the tax. Now, it could be that they were so penniless that this is the only way they could get their money. But there is one lesson we should take out of it no matter what it means. It is true, and I think as Jeremy pointed out, that he's saying we should try not to give offense. 
Now, is Jesus afraid of stepping up and giving offense? No. He's going to overturn tables over this issue. He's going to woe the Pharisees. He's going to say some pretty harsh things, including to his own disciples a little bit earlier. I don't think Jesus is worried about giving offense when he's speaking truth to people who need to hear it. But it seems here the principle is, if it's this minor, trivial thing, I don't think we need to give offense over everything. And I think the church, by the way, especially in our country, needs to hear that. That we can be much more gracious as even Jesus, who has every right to be exempt from this, kind of goes out of his way and says, let's do this so that we don't give offense. And I think that, that sets up a model for us that we should be more that way. What do we do with a chapter like 17? It seemed like all we did tonight was read the verses. There's not a lot of controversial sayings in it. There's not a lot of hard ways to live our life like other aspects of Matthew that we've looked at that are rich with meaning for how we live. So what do you do with stories that come after this? Like the transfiguration. Sounds great. Now we understand why Elijah shows up. Sounds great. The reason that we go through in detail every one of these things in a series like in this is because most of us, like I said last week, have a hard time really looking straight at the words of Scripture and living by what was actually written instead of what we hear about Jesus. So some of you, for example, right, might have been a little bit surprised by the words that he said, although we've seen them elsewhere. Some of you might be surprised by the tone that he takes on or what he asks people to do. The Jesus that I know and I love and I follow, sometimes I run into words like this, like, you asked Peter to do what? That surprises me about you. Right, because we serve a God who's much bigger than all of our thoughts, imaginations, ideas, and everything else. Let's pray and close up. Lord Jesus, we ask that your spirit who dwells in each of us and each of the conversations that happen tonight would take these words and put them somewhere deep in our hearts, that we would not skip lightly over the fact that your glory is such, that we would see it exhibited in the transfiguration, that an event the disciples like fell down on their knees and they're on their faces, that they couldn't handle just hearing the words of the Lord and seeing him in that way. But Lord, that we wouldn't skip over those words lightly, but remember that that's the God that we serve, that while you were here incarnated, that while you were here on earth teaching, you are still the God of glory. And that your kingdom doesn't have an end, that your reign is forever, that your kingdom is yours, and that we are just part of that. And Lord, we're even more humbled that you would come and die for those that you created, who turned their back on you, that you would give everything, that you would find that even equality with the Father was not something to hold on to, but that you would surrender that and to come and die in our place. Lord, we don't take those things lightly. As we begin to look forward in Matthew, Lord, we see what you're going to go through. And Lord, we ask that you would, through your Spirit, make those things very real to us, not just words on a page. And yes, Lord, continue to correct us in the places that we have built a different image of who you are and expand our understanding, even in places where people cannot agree. Expand our understanding to look at the awesome God that you are. Pray this in your name. Amen.